Uh, we are, as Paul said, in the, in the uh, study of the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you find us there in chapter, uh, chapter 9. We're at the end of the chapter, verses 42 through the end. And uh, so that's the section we want to unpack, Mark chapter 9. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel, maybe you're one of these people that just love like weird, awkward moments, but do you ever feel out of place? Like ever? I know there's some strange folks out there who actually love that stuff. Most people don't, all right? Like I'm going to share and be transparent. I, I get very uncomfortable in any surrounding that has dance involved with it, Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I, I never dance. I don't dance. I don't, know what, I don't know if the rumors are true, but I can't, okay? Um, so I feel a little uncomfortable. I, I don't party well, so I'm a drag at parties. I want to find the corner and get away. Uh, that's me too. And, and I'm very uncomfortable when my wife turns on The Bachelorette. I don't like that at all. So I just roam out into the garage and hope that there's something to do. That's, that's me. I don't know if you have your versions of that. The... Um, Everyone has things that make them feel odd, out of place, and uncomfortable, strange to, to us. Uh, the passage that we're dealing with today, if we're honest, is totally strange. It is this description of Jesus about what it means to follow him. And the way he describes it is so radical. Like, it's hard to even pick out anybody who lives like this. And if they did, we would point and stare, probably, because it's so strange. It's so unlike us. This is the point of this passage. It is the radical nature of discipleship. And I have to put radical in front of discipleship because that's the only version of disciple Jesus ever called anyone to. And there's, a, there's kind of a lie floating out there in the church somewhere that there's different ways to follow Jesus. There's the kind that says that you can have him as your savior and then just sort out your life on your own. And then there's the kind that suggests, I think, what Jesus says, is that it's way more intense than that, way more intentional than that. And I'm going to suggest to you that we should follow the words of Christ, right? So that's our plan today. Let's unpack this. Let's read these verses and, and, and see what we find out here. Again, this is Jesus' words, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with your two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray for God's discernment in this passage. God, I pray you'd quiet our hearts so that they can hear. Nothing is more close to your heart than what it means to follow you, so... We claim to follow you. Help us to see more clearly, more in depth of what we are to be, how we are to live with the power of Christ living in us and through us. God, we want to make much of you. We want the gospel to be our champion and to be our joy, but help us see what you saved us unto in this passage, we pray. Amen. Amen. If you were here last week, we, uh, I gave you a title for 
a bucket of verses, 50 verses almost, uh, on lessons of faith. And we talked about the requirements of faith it means we listen to Jesus. The requirement of faith is that we are dependent on God and his will and we love his cross and we walk in humility, trusting that God is growing his church. Faith is all of those things and, and more. Well, if last week was a great title to say these are lessons on faith and this week is just lessons on discipleship, okay? This is what Jesus is describing and what it means to follow him. In fact, if you, you don't have to turn there, but back in 31, where Jesus is trying to get away with his disciples, he said, I don't want anybody to know where we're going because I have something to teach you, verse 31. Well, the lessons are about what it is to follow, and here come the lessons. This is what it means. This is the radical nature of the gospel in you, okay? So I've broken this section down into three particular lessons that Jesus has for the church. Lesson number one, if you're going to understand discipleship, is that you need to be very careful how you treat believers. Lesson one. Lesson two, be very careful how you treat your sin. And lesson three, be very careful how you treat your witness, okay? That's how we're going to unpack this. If you were uh, paying attention when I read this, you might be a little confused because in your Bible, you don't find verse 44 or 46 if you were paying attention. In fact, if you have an ESV, which is an English Standard Version, which we put up on the screen, most of us have one of those, or you might have an NIV, 44 and 46 don't exist in your text. If you have a New American Standard, you'll find that it's there, but it's italicized. It's got parentheses around it. And so you might have a, you should be asking a question, and it makes sense. The reason why these verses were held out of most modern translations is because the earliest and the best manuscripts don't contain these verses, Okay? And so you should ask the question, well, why then did they show up at all? Well, here was, a, here was a thing that happened from time to time. Some of the later scribes would take the liberty with the text to when they found like a subject matter of importance and intensity, they would add to the text to create more intensity. Like this is the point of what Jesus is saying. Let's make the point even better. And so these scribes added um, verse 48 again. If you look at verse 48, it's very simple. And there, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is all that verse 44 and 46 are. They're just a repetitive thing. It's the scribes saying, this is super important. So let's make Jesus' words more intense. That's why they don't show up in our modern translation. It's no problem. They never made the mistake of adding some subjective truth to it. They would repeat themselves. They would stutter on a text to emphasize the text. Understand? And so that's what happens here in these two verses. And... and I, I suppose I could really appreciate that. Isn't that the essence of preaching, really? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do now is take whatever I think God has said in the word and kind of go, get it, you know, and I can emphasize it and come at it three different ways. So maybe a scribe is trying to do that, so I'm, I'm sensitive to, to it. Um, but to be honest, I think it's fair to say that what Jesus has said in these few seven verses is serious enough that it probably doesn't need a lot of help. What he's talking about is the thing that's the nearest and dearest to his heart of anything, and that is what it is, what it means to follow him, what it looks like to be his disciple. It is really serious to him. He gave his life for his children, so he gets to describe what we look like and how we live, and that's what he's doing here in this passage. Let me take you to a passage we've already been to just to prove to you that Jesus is not making up a new thought. He's repeating an old thought. Chapter 8, go back there, verse 34 these few verses, Jesus is pointing out what it means to come after him. And he says in verse 40, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. (laughs) This sounds very familiar to me. This sounds almost like Jesus coming up with new ways to say that old thing when he describes it here in verses 42 through 50 of what it means to follow. And so in this first lesson of what it means to follow, let me give you this. It means be very careful how you treat believers. Back to verse 42, just to remind us of the context. Jesus starts out by saying, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and him be thrown into the sea. Little ones wasn't referring to children. It was referring to believers, all of which were little ones at this stage of the game. All of them had met Jesus recently. All of them knew about this much of the kingdom of God. All of them were his kids. Jesus saying, be very, very careful how you treat my kids. These are my kids, all right? And I suppose there's huge potential that what Jesus has in mind is verse 38, where John has just come to Jesus, proud of himself, to say, Jesus, listen, there was a guy over here. We don't know his name, and he's not from us, but he's casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. So maybe Jesus, with that in mind, said, listen, you're doing harm to people you don't even know simply because they're not walking in your line. So he throws down this, I guess, this expectation for the church. Be very careful. Whoever causes one of these, one of these to sin, it'd be better for you to drown, okay? That's what he says here. The Greek word for um, that phrase, cause to sin, because you have to take that whole sentence in, in, in one specific bite here. It just means to scandalize. It means to, it means to cause to stumble or to create an offense, that's what it means. It means to cause some believers' faith to struggle, cause them to sin, to wander away from God. Now, nobody in here wakes up in the morning going, who can I ruin today? So this is not Jesus saying there's an inclination in your heart. There is just this indifference in our heart to not care about our brothers and our sisters who are dealing with Jesus, and we can be knuckleheads in how we treat them. And Jesus simply says, be very, very careful. Don't mess with the faith of my kids. Don't cause them to sin is what he says here. Jesus says it'd be better for, to have a millstone. The, the word is actually donkey stone. It was used to describe these ginormous mills that could only be turned by an animal, by a donkey. And it was a great picture for the disciples to understand how serious Jesus was because the Romans used that technique for, for execution. They would tie large stones around the people they wanted to kill and throw them into the sea. And the Jews would see them floating in the waves and in the current, right? Having drowned to death. So the picture is vivid for them. Jesus says, don't do that because this would be better. Okay? So the disciples get how serious this is to cause the spiritual harm to a fellow believer. And there's a principle that I'm, I'm sure we're all aware of that will help us understand why it's so serious. And it's the principle that Jesus shared with us called the least of these principles in Matthew chapter 25. He's talking about judgment one day separating those who are his and those who are not his. And, and he gives us this kind of litmus test of how we'll know the difference. And he says this, as you did it under the, one of the least of these, my brothers, what? You did it unto me. That somehow how we treat each other is a way we can tr- tangibly treat Christ. And it's a way he's going he's gonna to test us. Zechariah chapter 2, it says here that God's people, God's children are the apple of his eye. I suppose we could investigate where that phrase comes from, what the kind of history of that phrase is. But it's in essence, it's like if we mess with God's kids, it's like poking God right in his eye. Like we don't care about you. 
We don't care about what you care about. It's a huge offense to God. And you might be sitting here, like I said before, you don't wake up to do this. So how do we do this? Well, sad to say it, there are some Christians who um, directly tempt others. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. Um, it happens this way, and we hear about it typically in counseling when a, a spouse, Christian, is married to another spouse, Christian, and they war over the truth. And what they war over is selfishness and pride and greed. For instance, let me use this illustration. One spouse has got the gospel deeply, who's freed from things, so much so they want to be the hands and feet of Christ and be generous. And one spouse is holding on to everything tightly because their joy comes from something else as well. And one controls the other. Otherwise, all hell breaks loose in that home. It happens. It happens. It happens where Christians seduce Christians, guys to girls, girls to guys. It happens, leading them to sin. It could happen in a business relationship, right? Two Christians. We love Jesus, but, but suddenly... Right? We have these unethical practices because profit, profit, profit's why we do business, not the glory of God. When you take your freedoms, and we have freedoms in Christ, but when you take your freedoms and you press them on people and it makes them go against their conscience, you've caused them to sin. You understand? You can just add to this. Some of us are directly involved in causing some of God's kids to sin. Jesus says, it, it is not good that you do that. There is another way in which we cause this, and that is by our simple mistreatment of other people. We're insensitive. We're unloving. We're impatient. The American vernacular is we're a jerk, okay? We're just mean to people, and, the, and what we kick up and fan up in the other person's heart is anger. I, had a, I, had a, I saw it this week. I saw someone hurt someone, and, and the reaction was anger, like huge anger. And that happens in us. We just don't think deeply enough about how other people would respond to things. And so we say what we say in a selfish way, and it brings out sin. Jesus says, don't do that. It can happen also by our sinful example. Weaker brothers follow our lead. So whatever weaknesses you might have, whatever tendencies and inclinations you have, if you're seen as the one that's stronger, guess what you do without trying? You lead the weaker to sin. You have to think about your behavior. You have to think about your words. I think we also do this by our indifference to someone's spiritual health. I, I believe this. I believe the scriptures save us to serve, and part of that service is discipleship. Every person in here who would raise your hand to the question, are you a believer? You're a discipler. You're not only following someone as a disciple, you are leading someone as a discipler. Whether you like it or not, that's the way this kingdom thing works. Multiplication. Now, you might be this kind of discipler or this kind of discipler. It doesn't matter. Everyone's leading someone. And if we choose to say, I don't really care about the spiritual health of other people. I'm indifferent to whether they grow or whether they love or whether they serve. Then in some small way, you're contributing to the sin of a, of a little one. There's another way in which we do it, and it doesn't, hopefully, God willing, it doesn't happen much around here, and that is false teaching. Whenever you say, God said, and he didn't say, you lead others to sin. I could give you thousands of illustrations in our culture that's like that, and it's not true. But you get the warning, right? You get this principle of discipleship. Be very careful how you treat each other as Christians. Matters to Christ. In fact, if he wanted to stress it more, I don't know how he'd say it, it would be better for you to drown in a horrible, horrific way than to hurt one of my kids. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, 
on discipleship is be very careful how you treat your sin. Let's look at verse 43 through uh, 48 again. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and fire, the fire is not quenched. Does that sound radical to anybody? You see why I said in the beginning that this thing is so weird in our culture. Who do you know who deals with sin like that? Now, hopefully you understand what we're talking about here is, is figurative, not literal, right? The church has made a mistake in the past of taking these words for real. There was a professor, an English professor named A.J. Gossip, who found one of his students the night after he cut his hand off with a razor laughing and crying and saying out loud, now I can stand before Jesus. Oops. There have been monks in the past who have emasculated themselves to overcome their sexual desires. Guess what? Didn't work. You know why? Because of what you learn in chapter 7. Flip back to chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Jesus already told us why none of that would work. Verse 20, he said, Jesus, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile the person. Jesus says our issues aren't out here. They're in here. They're in the heart. The heart drives all these behaviors. And he's not teaching mutilation as a sin management tool because it doesn't work. You could cut off everything and you're still left with the heart, right? It's still there. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount kind of emphasized this truth when he had a series of statements. You've heard it said, but I tell you, going right at the issue because the religious leaders of the day thought and taught that if I control the outside, then the inside will follow. And it's just the opposite, when he said, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate in your heart, you're guilty. You've heard it said, not to commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust, you're guilty. He goes on and on with different statements, divorce, remarriage, swearing, an oath, all those things, pointing out that the issue is inside of us. So what is Jesus saying in this really strange section in Mark? Pretty simple. Church. Disciples, we deal with sin as harshly as necessary. We deal with sin immediately, and we're ruthless in how we handle it. That's how important it is to deal with our, our sin. Cut off the sinful practices. Jesus mentions the hand and the foot and the eye for a reason, because they represent kind of the totality of a person. You know, your, your foot, where you go, your eye, what you see, your hand, what you do. You get everything about what we sin in by our hands, our eyes, and our feet, don't you? And so what he's saying, in essence, is Christians, just listen. There are places your feet take you. You have no business going. This is not about religious freedom. This is not about, like, you choosing, like, I have this grace in Christ to just go wherever I want. The, even, even Solomon, 
the wisest man who ever lived in his, in his wisdom writings, takes his son down to the red light district and points down the street and says, boy, don't go down that road because they'll take your, your, take your brains out of your head. Don't go there. There are places our feet shouldn't go. And, and there's places our eyes would see or things our eyes would see we have no business seeing and things we do we have no business doing. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew kind of already taught this, didn't he? He added one particular part that I think is important, at least in the Jewish mindset, and therefore maybe an interpretive one to us, where Jesus talks about what you cut off is your right hand and your right foot and your right eye. And in the Jewish mindset, that was hugely significant because it represented the best and the most important parts of a person. Best work with your hands, your, your best vision, your best movement, that's what it meant, your best walk. The point that Jesus is making is that you need, I need to give him our very best and hold nothing back when it comes to dealing with sin as harshly as necessary. Isn't that true? Okay. I want to just try to make the point even more clear because we are excuse factories. You will say amen to this and then you'll go out and you'll leave open windows. And let me just encourage you, it isn't worth it. I've had too many conversations with men who say, my struggle is the internet. Man, it's just the internet. I fight like crazy. I fight like crazy. And I've had people say, well, just, I've told them, get rid of it. If it's your open window, if it's your failure into sin, just get rid of it. And here's what I hear. My job. I need it for my job. I got, I got to have it. In fact, I, I don't know how to connect all these relationships unless I have it. I think that's a perfect illustration for the extremeness of what Jesus is talking about. Nothing. Nothing. Even a good job isn't worth this sin. That's what he's saying. That makes sense? Uh, when I, uh, if you were here and I did that, <laughs> that Sunday on parenting, this is where the kids sit up and listen. And I told you, remember this, I told you, I said, regarding the smartphone device, I said, it is not sin to give your kid a smartphone, but it might be stupid. Do you remember that? I got so many evil looks from every high school, junior high student in the world because they're absolutely convinced I cannot live and survive in my world without this. And all I'm telling you, nothing is worth sin. Not even how connected you are, not even how cool you are, or what you do in the best ways with that thing if it leads you to evil. Jesus is simply talking about getting rid of it. Let me get even more extreme. Some of us have jobs that are totally inclined to our evil. I like control, and I like stuff. And I like, I, like, I like my pride, and I like to be in control, and so we have even this job, and we're unwilling to let go of some things in our job because I'm so inclined to my flesh regarding my pride and my want. The church has an epidemic, not this church, but the church. It happens here too, where it's so trendy now to manage our worries and our stress with illegal drugs. Like it happens. We sit and talk and I, got, I have to have this. I'm just telling you, church, listen, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. We're going to get to the hell part in just a second, but it's intense. What it means to follow Jesus, church, is to run the risk of looking odd in our world, to deal with sin with such veracity and such harshness, to shut windows and close doors so it have no effect on us. Means It means that we're going to be different. That's what Jesus is talking about. In fact, if we get to this issue of hell, he's making a point. Nothing, nothing is worth loving your sin so much that you reject the gospel. Nothing. 
And he mentions hell three specific times in verses 43, 45, and 47, but he describes hell in verse 48 when he says, where worm does not die and fire is not quenched. The word hell comes from the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a place in the valley of Hinnom near Jerusalem. It is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 16 and chapter 21. Uh, the valley was mentioned in connection with an evil king, King Ahaz and his wicked son. These two people were sick, sick men. They worshiped the false god, the pagan god Molech. And one of the practices of that faith, that Molech god, was human sacrifice, baby sacrifice. Now, this is Israel. Just get your mind around this. Where they sacrificed these babies to this false god was in the valley of Hinnom. That's where they did it. In fact, they would play drums over this valley to drown out the screams of the children. Well, years later, a good king came, Josiah, and he decides that Israel should and would worship Yahweh, the real God. And one of his first activities was to um, declare this valley of Hinnom like off, off bounds. He declared it to be um, evil, and he made it the garbage dump of the city, the sewer of the city, to make a point visually. That is evil. Now, I, I've been to garbage dumps once in a while. I don't know if you have, but there's something common to a garbage dump experience. Um, there is rot. There is waste, there is decay, there is, um, in some places back then, they would light fires so that the garbage wouldn't grow too big. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, fire. There were maggots infesting the corpse. There was complete um, disgust there. That is the picture Jesus uses to paint in his disciples' mind of what is to come for those who don't love his gospel. Now, I know it's trendy in the church to say there is no hell, but trust me, church, this is, this is Jesus, our Lord, who talks about it here. There is. So what is Jesus saying? What is he trying to teach about discipleship? I've got two aspects, and I'll get to it in just a second, but Jesus is trying to teach his men that this radical type of spiritual surgery that he is calling this, his disciples into is necessary and it's worth it. Let me clarify um, a couple of things. I think there's two aspects to Jesus' teaching here. One is the decision someone makes when they're outside of the kingdom and they hear the gospel and they put their faith and trust in Jesus and they're making a decision to leave sin and follow Christ, right? And then there's this other aspect of what it is to fight as believers who have been saved, okay? Both of them apply in this teaching, I believe. Jesus says to lay down our life. That's how he describes to follow him. In fact, we already read it, but in chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross, this instrument of death, and he must follow me, right? That's what he must do. You must lose your life is what Jesus says. And that's the decision every Christian in here has made when we came to Christ. Now, although we didn't know everything about what we were doing, and we didn't know how much God was coming after, what we knew of our sin, we said, okay, I don't want this anymore, Right? I'm leaving this behind. That's the word repentance the church uses to describe this engagement with Jesus at the moment of conversion. I hate my sin. I want Jesus, and I'm leaving it. That's what we do. Sounds very much like verses 43 to 48, doesn't it? It's like the decision, like the spiritual decision to say, okay, I had my value in these things. I had my value in where I went and what I saw, and I recognized that as sin, and I'm laying it behind, and I'm trusting in Christ. And, and all things. That's the decision we make when we come to him. We turn from our sin. We deal with sin harshly at that moment. And Jesus is simply reinforcing what we already know. That's worth it. 
The judgment to come if you reject his one and only way, who is Christ, is horrible, horrendous. You're miscalculating if you think you can make it through hell because it's horrible. But there's another aspect, and I think it's true for us as well. And it's the, it's the aspect of how disciples, Christians, deal with their sin. It's how we fight and how we grow. Not because, and make sure you understand what it's not. Not because if we fall, God will go, okay, forget the promise. You screwed up. I'm changing my mind. That's not what we're afraid of. We don't have to worry about God forgetting us or denying himself when, if we sin. And we all sin, don't we? Every one of us fall. We don't fight sin so that we don't go to hell. That's not what we do. If we did it for those reasons, this would not be of grace. It would not be by faith. It wouldn't be in Christ alone. It would be on my efforts. Do you understand? Okay. We deal with sin simply because this is what the gospel produces in us. The Spirit of God lives in us, and sin will not satisfy. Church, look up, okay? You know this. Every one of us sin. And when we do, what does it do to us? It disappoints, doesn't it? It never satisfies, ever. It might have this brief moment of wow and then the reality. It's not worth it. We deal with our sin because sin isn't the reflection of our Savior. We deal with our sin because the kingdom is better than all things. We deal with our sin ultimately because our hearts have been changed and we really don't want to sin. Isn't that true? If you're a Christian here and you say, no, I really want to, then there's a problem. We got to talk a little bit. But every true believer, even though we might fight, even though we might fall and fail in our sin, when we're all said and done, we know, I don't want that. I don't want that. In fact, we're looking for some miracle of God to change us to such a degree that we won't want those things anymore, don't we? We end up kind of crying out like Paul in Romans chapter 7. Okay. Here's the point. Although we all sin and we all sin every day, every day Christians get up to lay something down. And that's what we do as disciples. Okay, God, you know my tendencies. You know my inclinations. You know where I go when I'm trying to find peace another way. You know how I behave when someone kind of crowds me or frustrates me or makes my life miserable. You know what I do. So God, I'm laying that down. I'm laying down my tendencies to be angry. I'm laying down my tendencies to lust. I'm laying down my tendencies to pick up another version of God and love him for a day. God, I'm laying it down. And every day, that's what disciples do. Lay it down. If you want to come after me, pick up the cross. Follow. That's the essence of this message. That's the disciple's life. If you were here last week, I told you this. The reality of our faith isn't experienced in the perfection of it. It's experienced in the fight of it. Do you remember this? That's what we do. We confess our sins and we get up and we lay down our life and we go again. A thousand times a day if we have to. That's what Christians do. Um, This name probably won't be familiar to most of you, but there's an old evangelist named Billy Sunday. Does anyone remember that name? Okay, some of you remember it. Eight o'clock, we all knew it. I loved what he said about sin. He said, one reason why sin flourishes is that it's treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. It's true, isn't it? Sin doesn't look that scary to us. We don't treat it like it's going to kill us. We treat it like we can bring it close and play with it and get rid of it when we want to. And 
That's not true. Here's what Jesus is saying. Treat your sin like a rattlesnake. Cut it off. It wants to hurt you. Cut it off. Don't make excuses. Give God your best, and I promise you will not be disappointed. Okay, here's lesson number three on discipleship. Lesson number three is be very careful how you treat your witness or your testimony. Verses 49 through 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus says salt is good, but if that salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let me try to answer the question, salted with fire. What does that mean? Um, In Ezra and Ezekiel, uh, they talk about these sacrifices with salt, okay? Sacrifices used um, for atonement, sacrifices used to depict in picture form what God through Christ has to do for us, practices that were Old Testament practices, okay? Clearly, every Jew in there understood sacrifices were meant to be burnt and die, okay? And Jesus is simply saying the life of a disciple is a life of sacrifice, okay? It's the life of suffering. That's what a life of a disciple is, okay? So fire has always been understood, always in Scripture, to describe trials or suffering or, or persecutions, right? You've heard this before. I'm, I'm, I'm in the fire. I'm, I'm in the fire. I'm going through the struggle. I'm going through the fight, right? That's, that's what it's always been used for. Salt, on the other hand, seems a little weird and a little out of place. But if you understand the Old Testament practice of salting a sacrifice as a way to remind the people of the promise of God to never drop you, then you understand maybe in total what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Pretty simple. Trials, persecutions, difficulties, suffering are part of what it means to follow Christ as a disciple. But you never, ever have to worry if God's going to drop you. You're a sacrifice, but you're assaulted in the promise of God. He will never let you go. He will never let you go beyond what you can bear up under. He will not drop you. He will not let you down. So what Jesus is calling us to do, our life of a disciple, is to live in the fire. Live in the fire. The inevitable part of what it means to follow him is suffering. Live in it and let the world see your God who keeps his promises. You understand why I said one of the lessons in this is be very careful how you treat your witness. I I personally believe that the church is never more showing Jesus than when it suffers. Like I think people would come in here and think we love Christ. I think they would think you're happy, nice people. But when everything's fallen apart, when you're under the weight of suffering, when you're under the weight of persecution and trials, and you still love him much, that's what blows their mind. They don't know what to do with that. Nothing happens like that unless there's something real in you. That's what changes their perspective. Live in the fire. Let God get the glory from that. Jesus said in verse 50, salt is is good. The Jews had a saying that the world can't survive without salt. So let's just make the connection between salt and what Jesus is saying in ourselves. Jesus is calling you to make, not to make a decision about whether you're going to be salt. Listen very carefully. This is not a decision you make. Jesus says, if you're a Christian, you are salt, okay? I'm not calling you, hey, wake up, everybody. Let's go be salt. You are. That's why when Jesus gets to this section that says when salt loses its saltiness, we kind of miss that in our culture because our salt can sit on the shelf forever. Their salt couldn't. Their salt wasn't pure. It had gypsum in it. It had minerals in it. If it sat around, it would grow rancid. If you didn't use it, you lose it, and you throw it out on the street, Just think of that picture now when Jesus is looking at the church saying, listen, use your witness because you could lose it. You could throw it away. It will be for nothing. 
If you're isolated in your little Christian cocoon and you don't take your suffering and your life outside and you don't show the glory of Christ in your life, what good is salt? What's the point? You get, you get what Jesus is saying here, right? Salt in that day was used for as a preservative, as a flavor enhancer, like it is our day, an influence and blessing. So you should get this. We are to be a preserving influence in a world that clearly is rotting away, is it not? It's fallen apart. Every, I mean, I'm only 54, okay? I say only. That sounds old, doesn't it? I'm only 54, and I can't even hardly describe to my children what life was like 30 years ago, 40 years ago. It's rotting, and yet Jesus says, you go, you go, and put that preserving influence of the gospel in your world, in your society, in your culture, in your neighborhood, in your homes, in your businesses. Do that. Salt also created thirst, okay? We should create thirst, the thirst for Jesus. People should see in us such a different kind of life that they ask us the question, what hope do you have? Where does it come from? Why are you happy? And that creates the thirst for Christ. Our presence should make a difference. We're to be a blessing in this world. And because the world is watching, Jesus says, be very careful. Be very careful, church, about your witness. You are to be salt. He said, be very careful about how you deal with your sin. It's serious business. Take whatever extreme measures you need to make. Be very careful how you treat other believers, okay? This passage, without a lot of help, seems so strange to us, doesn't it? Who, Who would go about dealing with sin to those extremes? That's why when I said cell phone, I saw all of you look at that panic look on your face, like, how could I live without this thing, Right? feels like a week ago we didn't even have it. Now we can't live without it. I'm not suggesting you get rid of your phone. That's an illustration. But what I'm saying to you is that what's foreign to us is to hate sin that much. Whatever it takes, whatever it is, we'll die to that. Here's what's common in our culture, and that is this idea of the radical nature of sin. Sin just keep going, keep going, and we will not press back against it, not in our lives, not in our culture, and I think we're missing the point if we don't think that we play a role in that as disciples of Christ, as what Jesus says here in this passage. Now, I think it would be malpractice, if there's such a thing for pastors to commit, if I didn't stop and say something to some of you, okay? And uh, I'm always aware that there's somebody here who doesn't know Jesus. And that's not me looking at your life saying, I don't think you know Jesus. This is you. You, maybe even in your secrecy, keeping inside of your heart the reality that I know about him, but I don't know him. I don't love him. I don't serve him. I haven't put my faith and trust in him. Maybe passages like this, maybe discussions about the worth of Christ, the, the beauty of the gospel, maybe conversations about how serious sin is and what God will do with sin one day, makes you take another thought about where you are with Christ. And I'm just going to throw this out, and I have to do this, okay? I want to give you three words, confess, repent, and believe. If there's a part of you that just looks at your sin and goes, I hate it, and it doesn't ever satisfy, then you've discovered a part of the gospel. The gospel is also bad news that wrapped up in your tiny little heart is such rebellion that there isn't a matter of life or religion, not prayer or good works, that can sort your problems out with God. You need Jesus. And all you do is confess. You confess. Confess is agreeing with what God already knows about you. 
that you're a sinner that can't fix your problems. It's confession, as Jesus said, or Paul tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Confession in who he is and what he did. It's believing in him as Lord come to earth from heaven and taking on human form to die in your place and satisfy God in all ways. It's repentance. It's leaving your sin behind. It's the 180 on your life. Whether you know all what that means now or not, it doesn't matter. The most that you can put toward what you understand about your life and your sin, saying, God, I don't want that anymore. I want to leave it behind. And if you do that, confess, repent, and believe, you are his kid. You're his kid. You are now secure in the love of God forever and ever, and no one can snatch you from his hand. That's what the gospel says. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you that he is better than all things. I thank you that there is no joy, no satisfaction in the entire world that can even closely compare to the satisfaction of Christ for us and in us and to us. I pray, God, that you'd help us, your church, to take very seriously what Jesus gave his life for, and that is our new life, the new life that cares for each other, the new life that hates the sin, the new life that that lives in the fire. For your glory, we pray. Amen.